You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. Investors in China tech stocks have been rattled recently by a regulatory crackdown by the State Council of China. With me to discuss the matter and its implications and potential implications for certain asset classes is Alan Xiao, who's a portfolio manager at 91 in Hong Kong. I think we need to go back a little bit, Alan, before we get to the educational sector. And we have to go back at the origins of this. And to me, it started with the Alibaba Pay platform, the listing of which was curtailed because of regulatory concerns. Am I correct in that assessment? Yes, you are. I mean, I think what we've recently seen is merely the latest point of a long arc uh, of policy adjustments, uh, both in China as well as more broadly in the world as governments try to adjust to the emergence of new economies, right, new business models uh, that, frankly, are not regulated, if at all, today very well. Okay, and then it escalated a little bit with the DD story. And then there seemed to be, I don't know, there seemed to be a, a little bit of tit for tat between uh, the United States and their assessment of what was going on with China's tech stocks on US exchanges with the China authorities. But what's behind this? Is it because they're becoming too powerful or is it because the power is fine, but it needs to be regulated by the China authorities? So there are actually quite a few different threads in this conversation. And, and I think part of the market response has been a confusion or conflation of these different threads. Um, so let's try and separate them. I think the first is that there is definitely an adversarial competition between the United States and China economically now that China has emerged. And one of the key disadvantages that China sees uh, in itself is its deficiency in, in tech, uh, especially the tech of the future. So this is a race that they, that they would like to be competitive in, not necessarily to win from the Chinese perspective, but merely to stay competitive and to be able to not be blocked from joining the table uh, and, and having an equal seat at the table, if you, if you see what I mean. Yes. So the way I think this, this initiative is being seen domestically in China is, you know, you know, we have emerged. We're not interested in, in, in dominating, but it's time that the world recognizes that we are no longer a poor cousin. And in order to prove that, we need to be an equal. And technology is one of the areas where, where we need to catch up. So that, that's one thing. I think in America, this is seen differently uh, and by different constituents. I think you have you know, some members of, of uh, the political persuasion who see this as existential and that it's a winner-take-all. There can only be one. And others who see this as, you know, more of a, um, you know, still a competition, but where, you know, we can accommodate more than one winner. So that's all to be seen. Separate to that competition, then you then have the, the, the security element, which is China's emerging clout as a, as a military force in the region as well as externally. This also extends into, for example, um, cyber warfare. Uh, so we've had these, you know, recent sort of groundbreaking accusations led by the U.S. and its allies in the Five Eyes Alliance that China was, you know, named as a state actor in in hacking uh, of U.S. interests uh, onshore, right? So that's two parts of the of, of that of the you know two threads of that conversation. So, you know, the the, the pure economic, and then there's also the the geopolitical security angle. The third level, which I think is is the least well understood, is just internal to China. Much as they'd like, you know, they, they, they understand they're in this breakneck 
race against the world and the US in particular to sort of, uh, you know, get to the position of, of leadership in, in certain uh, technology uh, spheres. They are still trying to figure out, you know, how this can be accommodated in the context of, of the Chinese cultural uh, setup and, and economy, right? So how does the new internet age look like uh, under Chinese characteristics, to borrow an oft-used phrase, right? And one of the negatives that they see uh, that comes out of this is, is, you know, how does this affect the fabric of their society? So when it comes to just purely the education sector, um, I think it's a, it's a key thing to note that this is not, you know, a tech question per se. This is because they had noticed that there was a, a large and growing uh, market for after-school tuition for children from kindergarten to year nine. So this is the you know, young children. Yes. And the, the growth of this sector was being, if you like, turbocharged because of the arrival of capital uh, from the West, because these businesses managed to tack on the, the glamour of, of being, you know, a technology business, right? And that was really the addition of Zoom, uh, the addition of video, the addition of, of uh, internet telephony to make these classes, uh, to move them outside of their sort of traditional offline setting into a, an online business, right? And these businesses then attracted a huge amount of, of foreign capital, uh, mainly raised in equity markets. Um, and China has been grappling with this for the last two or three years, not, not just now, right? So the issue that they see is, China wants to have a meritocratic system where children throughout the country can aspire to good jobs by taking one exam, the famous Gaokao, which determines, you know, much of their future. Yeah. And so parents, understandably, have been grooming their children for this exam. And the arrival of these tuition centers and their turbocharging was creating a lot of pressure and inequality, much in the same way, in parallel, the same competition is being played out in America uh, in the university admissions system, right? Has been has been the subject of recent uh, documentaries, um, you know. So, richer parents being able to better prepare their children, and then gaming places at prestigious university universities that are supposedly meritocratic, but in reality, you know, sometimes there are side doors, back doors, if you like, and all of that stuff. So China's approach is to say. We don't want, you know, we think this creates unnecessary pressure. So first, this industry as a whole, we don't like. We don't like what it's doing to our children. And we also don't like that foreign capital is benefiting and allowing the rapid growth of this in a way that we don't have any control over. So they want control. Um, they, they don't mind the, the, the theory behind it. In other words, educating China's youth, uh, because the education system in China is extraordinary compared to, to the West. I mean, children working uh, six days, uh, six and a half days a week and studying assiduously, whereas uh, maybe the West is uh, deemed to be slightly more lazy in that regard. What they want is not to curtail these activities, but to have some control over them. But what I don't understand is, Alan, if you and I set up an online education business now, there'd be two aspects to it, to my mind. Vocational, because we want to educate children, and two, with a profit motive. If you take away the profit motive, which the State Council of China seems to want to do, then the vocational aspect may seem less appealing. Sure. So, look, I think you're, you, you're spot on in terms of, of the insight there. So then we need to go a level deeper to understand what is the relationship between the profit motive 
and this control element, right? So, you know, I guess it comes back to how you see the competition. So they have a entrance exam, you know, welcome to the rest of your life exam, basically, where they believe that, you know, a rural student should be not disadvantaged versus an urban student who has more benefits. If you allow these classes and they are allowed to be for profit, that means that you will then have a, a sliding scale of price where richer uh, customers are able to afford better service, you are de facto then providing an advantage to wealthier uh, customers. And China is extremely sensitive about the creation of inequality within its social fabric. And so it cannot, um, the whole um, socialist ethos, uh, you know, will be, it, it's, it's toxic to that ethos to have the concept that, you know, your one sacred exam is gained by the rich, right? Yeah. So that's why they want to remove the profit incentive because they want to remove, they, you know, if you remove the profit incentive, then there's no one there who's going to provide a premium service. Then everyone will get the same service and then you can't say that it's unfair. So it's not that they don't want kids studying or, you know, they want to, them to study under their own power. They don't want any external help and they do not want any accelerant to be possible through the provision of capital, right? That's the, the first element, the fairness, right? And you can see that that is, you know, culturally, let's say, specific, because you or I or someone else may look at that and go, that's a bit, you know, perhaps um, naive or utopian or dystopian, but that's philosophically, that is one angle of where they're coming from. The second is many of these uh, businesses also were providing tuition to children onshore in China from teachers abroad, right? Because that was the whole uh, electronic portion of this. Uh, Post-COVID, there was a big introduction of, oh, we can now bring you English teachers from the West direct into your living room, right? So no longer will you, person stuck in small rural town, have to contend with English language instruction from whoever happens to be in your town. You can now get that from everywhere else. And you can get that as young as kindergarten. So there are elements of the Chinese Communist Party who might look at that and say, hmm, do I like the idea of um, an unvetted, uncontrolled consumption of instruction from the West into the young hearts and minds of my population? You can see why they would be, they would find that hard to stomach. Okay, yeah, I understand the theory behind it, and you've described it so well. Let's have a look at the market reaction now. You come up with five points in the piece that you kindly sent me a couple of days ago. It says here, market reaction has been abrupt and spilled over. Uh, beware uh, sweeping extrapolation without going into each of the five in too much detail. We have to get your general views on what has happened. Was the market reaction, whether it be in the equity asset class or the corporate bond asset class, has it been appropriate or has it been overdone? So I think with hindsight, we can say uh, that it was overdone. Certainly, um, when it was taking place, uh, it felt really awful. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, won't, I won't lie. And I think the other part is that sentiment towards investment in China this year has been weakened because of a series of, of such challenges to confidence, right? So this thing in isolation maybe would have been interpreted with a more level head, but because it came hot on the heels of other um, issues, you know, some of the, the other things I mentioned, the, the cyber, the, the, you know, the issues with Huarong, it, it formed part of a pattern. So, um, and there was an extrapolation because the statement that came out was specific to this sector 
And the only nexus between this case um, and the broader market was the use of the IEs. Um, and secondly, uh, the sort of soft connection between these businesses, tuition, um, to, to uh, the broader tech space because of the online element. So in the absence of any clarification, I think investors were, you know, it was fair that investors who had been burned elsewhere and in other ways this year, you know, reacted by selling first and asking questions later. I, I don't think that was necessarily um, a crazy thing to do. Um, I mean, we looked at it and, and also the, if you, if you, if you uh, follow the price action on the day, it all happened very quickly. Yes. So it wasn't as if there was a, an opportunity to consider, right? Um, so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to, um, uh, begrudge, uh, you know, my, my peers that, you know, acted, uh, because they felt that was the right thing to do. For us, it was, okay, hang on. They've said something very specific about this sector. And this sector is something that they have been talking about, uh, and been unhappy about for two years, had been threatening regulation. Um, and finally they've come out and the regulation seems more draconian than we expected. So the removal of the ability to make a profit, the, the, for, the forbidding of foreign capital, that was something we've never seen before. So very draconian, but very narrow. And so the key question was, what is the read across? Does this affect everything else? So clearly the market judged that there was a read across. And it also judged that this means the risk premium for China overall had, had to go up. Um, and I think that was probably a fair reaction, right? And um, there's an element of recursiveness to this because given that reaction, I think the authorities in China then stood up and said, oh, what happened there, right? We thought we were saying something very specific about one yes. area and it looks like the market thinks we mean everything. Well, I think what they so, said, I think if you're an investor looking at China and the potential, your potential or uh, increased investment in China asset classes, you say to yourself, well, if this can happen just out of the blue on a, on a Sunday night, then maybe it can happen again. And whether it's the education sector or the ride hailing uh, sector or the food delivery sector, whatever it is, the fact is it can be done. So we're very nervous. That brings me to the last couple of questions. The first of which is, has this done lasting damage to China's reputation when it comes to being an investment destination? So I don't think it's done lasting damage. I think it's certainly set, set their stall back, right? I mean, this is... This is not a trivial minor uh, speed bump. This is something quite meaningful. And some investors that perhaps uh, acted quickly, uh, you know, are now going to think again before they, they rejoin the fray. So I think in the long term, it, you know, China's prospects are undimmed. But in the medium and short term, I think um, it, it will create um, a, a heightened sense of risk uh, about the prospect, right? Um, and it is then incumbent upon them to make uh, investors feel comfortable by, by providing clarity and certainty about things. Because the wider arc, um, and if you listen to other state organs in terms of what they say, you know, they're very much committed towards internationalization. They're very much committed towards having foreign capital come into the country uh, because the wider project, right, is, is for China to emerge and continue emerging. Obviously, these objectives are in, in tension. You know, they, they want to be more and more part of the world, but they equally want to maintain their own sense of identity. And I think that, you know, on this occasion, it was just, you know, um, as a colleague of mine in the Hong Kong office said, you know, it, it, you know, a little bit of a lost in translation moment, right? So something said primarily for a domestic audience was then reverberated around the world through the lens of, of you know, 
uh, a Western audience and, and there was a misunderstanding, right? Um, now, because it's happened as part of a pattern, I think that's the other telling point. You know, I think, you know, Chinese authorities now have to be extra careful, extra sensitive about their next steps. And sorry to interrupt you, they are being extra sensitive because they got a lot of investment bankers behind closed doors and clarified their position on this regulatory uh, shift, which was so dramatic and rather uh, probably clumsily handled. Let's talk about the markets now. Focus on fundamentals and keep an eye out for opportunities, you say. We'll briefly talk about this. Risk, obviously presents opportunities. So what you've got to do, especially with reference to the uh, corporate bond market in China, there must be companies that got unfairly punished when it came to their corporate bond uh, market. And as I said, presented opportunities. Have you seen them? Yes, indeed. I mean, on the day that the news broke, I mean, so here there, there's a further distinction, which is that um, the policy change Let's say we, we believed that the policy change would, was applicable to more than just that one sector. Even if that were the case, the impact of the policy is very different to you know, it, whether you are an equity investor or an investor. As an equity investor in a fast-growing, you know, in, a, in a growth sector like tech, right, what you're really doing is, is paying a high premium for potential future growth. And a policy with, which radically undercuts that growth or that profitability should give you pause. As a debt investor, what we're really looking for is companies, not so much that are growing, but companies that can very comfortably service their debt. Um, a lot of the companies in this sector have raised very large war chests, so their balance sheets are very strong, at least for the moment. So these are companies that have net cash, no leverage, no debt, or more cash than debt. And they can survive many lean years um, before um, their credit profiles are even damaged. Um, many of them have much stronger franchises that span more than one sector. So even if you imagine they take, you know, uh, an entire sleeve of the business away, they often have more than, uh, you know, other sleeves that they could rely on. So there is a differentiation between the, the equity impact and the, and the fixed income impact. And then there is also uh, the point that, you know, one, need, one needed to have uh, thought about whether or not this was something that would spread everywhere or just uh, be, be confined to one place. So we, we did see opportunities because there was indiscriminate selling um, in, in the sector, in, in tech and in other sectors that people felt were, were exposed, either because they had a policy or, um, or tech sensitivity and they were unfairly punished. And we have seen quite a sharp reversal of that just uh, after the clarification during the meeting, as you say, where, where uh, the senior Chinese regulators uh, met with uh, investment bank executives from Western institutions behind closed doors. And I think that uh, that retracement is not yet complete. So the opportunities are still there. But equally, uh, I don't think policy-wise, we're also fully out of the woods just yet, because there will be more twists and turns to this tale. Yeah, I think there will be as well. Fascinating situation that's developing and a great analysis. Alan, thank you very much for your time. That's Alan Xiao, who's a portfolio manager at 91 in Hong Kong. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.